Gender is a shell game. What is man? Whatever a woman isn't. What is a woman? Whatever a man is not. Tap on it, and it's hollow. Look under the shell, it's not there. To embrace gender is to embrace the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the news story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 95 of Embrace the Void, where we're going to keep discussing gender until morale improves. I'm your host, Aaron, and my guest this week has many wonderful things to say on the next step in conversations on gender and sexuality. That step beyond what is typically shared in media, even media nominally made for trans individuals, for example. Uh, as you'll hear, uh, she makes it so easy to jump into the deep end on these debates. So take a deep breath and let's do the thing. My guest this week is Callie Wright, host of the Queer Splaining podcast and parent to one of the cutest doggos on the internet. Uh, Callie, would you like to say hi to the void? Why, hello, Void. I was in a good mood already, but you said sweet things about my puppy, so... Oh, the cutest puppy. Oh, I have such feelings about your puppy. He's kind of the best. <laughs> uh, I want to have a puppy so that I can fill your feed so that you feel the same things that I feel when I, every time I see your puppy. I fully endorse this course of action. <laughs> <laughs> so... For those who aren't familiar, I've chatted with Callie before over on Philosophers in Space. We did a, a amazing episode on Dax from DS9 that I'll link in the show notes. Everybody should check out. But I'm really glad to have uh, Callie on for a variety of other topics of conversation. So I wanted to start. You used to have a podcast called The Gaytheist Manifesto, and it's now called Queer Splaining. Um, and I was curious what prompted that transition. Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, the format of the show when it was the Gaytheist Manifesto was very much interview style. So it was, you know, call somebody up on Skype and we'll have a conversation about a thing and do some basic edits and that's the show, right? Um, that's the most common style of podcasting and uh, and there's nothing wrong with it. Lots of the podcasts that I listen to are that. But that's just kind of not what I wanted to do anymore. I was more interested in uh, more like deliberate, highly produced, put together storytelling, like like the stuff you would hear on NPR, like, uh, you know, Radiolab, Invisibilia, This American Life, that kind of stuff. And there's a lack of that kind of thing in mainstream media. So you hear lots of stories about queer folks and you hear uh, maybe not lots, but you do hear stories about trans folks. 
Um, but if you listen to them, it's kind of painfully obvious that there weren't a lot of queer or trans folks involved in making the story and that queer and trans folks were definitely not the intended audience for those stories. And mm-hmm. um, I kind of got the sense that I was going through a zoo exhibit, right? Like we're looking at <laughs> queer and trans folks through glass, like, ooh, curiosities, you know, um, instead of actually like giving someone the space to like let mm-hmm. us into their lives. And um, and I started kind of doing that before I changed the name of the show or anything like that. Um, and then I realized that like, I wasn't really making a lot of atheist content anymore. Uh, again, not that that's not a thing that's important. It's just not necessarily the kind of stuff that I wanted to do anymore. And I realized that the kind of stuff that I was making didn't really fit the name of the show anymore. And it made sense to change the name of the show because, um, the content had already changed pretty dramatically. And I thought a name change would reflect that. That makes sense. Um, for your description, I'm curious, were there any, could you highlight it, maybe a trope or two from the shows that you were listening to where you felt like they sort of gave away the game on who was involved in the production? Well, so largely it's that like almost every story you ever hear that involves a trans person is about their coming out and their attaining surgery or something along those lines. Um, and again, you know, like a lot of other things, it's not like those stories don't matter, but that's not all there is to our community. Right. And so, you know, I've talked about my transition tons on the show, but I tend to go on more of like a 301 level. Mm-hmm. The shows like like the stuff you hear about trans folks on NPR usually is like the story of me struggling with my gender identity and then I came out and then I had surgery and that's the story. Uh, and that's great. Like that, those things should exist. But the fact that that seems to be most of what there is, is a problem. Um, mm-hmm. and so that's, that's the main one. And then with, uh, with queer folks, I think a lot of times it gets reduced down to, uh, stories about queer folks being discriminated against or stories about queer folks finding love. And, uh, again, both very important things, but if those are the only things you hear about, you're not going to get a full picture of what it's like to experience the world as a queer or trans person. Mm-hmm. And so I, I like to kind of dig a little deeper into that. Like, for example, like when you hear about discrimination, you hear about non-discrimination laws, right? And how uh, we want to have non-discrimination laws that protect queer and trans folks. And, uh, and those are good things, but a conversation that's not often heard is that like, sometimes those laws don't necessarily work, um, Mm -hmm. that like, you know, people will find a way around it and there's like interpersonal things that happen. And like, there are places, there are people who experience these things in places where these laws are in place and where these policies are in place. And, um, and those things are a lot more nuanced and sticky and harder to pick apart. And so you don't often hear stories like that, or at least I don't often hear stories like that. Um, and, And a lot of it was just searching too. Like if you just search for like podcasts made by trans folks, Mm -hmm. um, like regardless of the subject matter, uh, trans folks involved in the production of podcasts, there's just not many of us. I mean, we're out there, uh, but there's just not that many of us. And most of the shows, at least most of the shows that I was able to find, uh, are shows that made some episodes and were going for a while and then people stopped, um, which is a thing that happens. Pod fading is real, right? Like most podcasts don't, continue for very long. Um, but, uh, but that was, you know, a a lack of, of that too, just, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of trying to, trying to correct that and yeah, be more into making things like that. I think that makes sense. I think it's valuable to have 
like you said, some of that like 300 level content out there for folks who want to hear sort of the next steps of some of these um, stories. Uh, and it ties in like uh, sort of I was trying to think of how we wanted to frame this conversation because there's so many different kinds of questions that I want to ask you about. And maybe we could sort of look at what you think the the 300 level takes are for sort of a couple of the different fronts within this very big milieu of conversations about gender and sexuality and and um, sex, all these sorts of things. Um, and I was thinking maybe we could start from the inside out a little bit. Like maybe you could talk a little bit about, so, you know, you, lots of people do episodes about my, my wrestling with this thing as I was transitioning. What are you wrestling with now? Like internally, what sorts of questions are you turning over? And do you feel like you're making progress on that sort of stuff? Yeah, a, a big one for me right now is unpacking what of my ideas around gender are part of cultural programming and what is just sort of inherent to who I am as a person. Um, so one, like what are the differences between those things? And two, does it really matter? And I think, you know, the answer can be yes or no. So like, for example, I, uh, when, you know, when I first came out, I was very much like had my fingernails painted all the time. I was wearing dresses all the time, long hair, makeup all of the time. And in my head, that was never a question. Like that's how I wanted to present myself to the world. Um, and those things are all very stereotypically feminine. And in my head, it was just like, well, you know, it probably makes it a little bit easier for me to navigate the world that the things that I want are the things that are stereotypically feminine. So like that makes things a little easier for me to navigate. And over time, as I became more comfortable, like with my internal sense of who I was, that started to shift a little bit. And, you know, if you look at me now, like, I mean, I like stereotypical lesbian, like, you know, ear length hair, undershave, usually wearing a tank top, a band t-shirt, jeans, uh, kind of got the lumberjack lesbian thing going on <laughs> when it's cold <laughs> outside. And, um, and, and that wasn't deliberate. I, uh, I told a story in a talk that I gave and like, it's a great laugh line, but it's actually true that I had noticed I just sort of started subtly collecting flannel and just stopped wanting to wear <laughs> dresses as much. Um, and there was literally one day where like I hadn't done laundry and I didn't have anything to wear. And so like I ran to my closet and I grabbed a dress that I hadn't worn in a while and I wore it to work and it was so uncomfortable. And I just remember thinking how weird that was because I wouldn't have been comfortable wearing pants three years ago. Mm hmm. And then so so what is that, right? Am I feeling less beholden to gender stereotypes because I'm more comfortable in myself? Uh, are my tastes just changing? Because obviously that happens throughout a person's life as well. Is it because I've had bottom surgery now and I'm more comfortable with my body that I don't feel the need to uh, make up for that discomfort with my outward presentation? Mm -hmm. And so those are all like really difficult questions that I'm not a hundred percent sure that I have the answer to. And there are things that I feel like I, I want to know, but if mm -hmm. I say like, you know, why do I need to know this? I don't know that I have a good answer for that because I think knowing the reasons why I'm not sure that would change anything. Like if I understood that, like I was letting go of a bunch of gender stereotypes, like what is that like in a practical sense? What does that lead me to do? Am I going to start going to trans trans support groups and be like, you don't need to wear dresses? Like that's silly. I'm not going to do that um, mm -hmm. because like I trust everyone to be where they're the most comfortable, and so it's it's sort of a self curiosity thing. 
Um, another big one for me is uh, the narratives that we uh, that we have around trans folks, even supportive uh, allies, uh, even supportive cis folks, when we're talking about trans folks in surgery, right? Mm-hmm. I had an extraordinarily difficult recovery from my bottom surgery. Like I went out of my way to find difficult recovery stories so I could <laughs> prepare myself and I was still not adequately prepared. And uh, to be clear, my experience seems to be an outlier. Most folks seem to have a lot easier of a time than I did. And I'm grateful for that. And there was a hesitation in me to talk about that because mm-hmm. A lot of trans people want and need that kind of stuff and never get access to it for one reason or another. Uh, they don't have insurance that will cover it. They don't have the money. They don't have somebody that can take care of them during recovery. Um, you know, they have fear of surgeries and fear of uh, inadequate surgery results, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so for me to be like, oh my gosh, I want this thing, uh, you know, I crowdfunded for it and I wouldn't have been able to do it without the folks who donated to my crowdfunding campaign for it. Um, and then for me to turn around and talk about how hard it was made me feel really ungrateful. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a, a pressure that a lot of trans folks feel in that like once we once we attain this thing that we're looking for, there's a pressure that like we're not allowed to have a hard time with it anymore. Um, right. And that's a conversation that I don't hear much outside of like trans support groups like trans folks talk about this kind of stuff with each other all the time. Yeah. But outside of that, I like I I was legitimately terrified. So there's a, a local atheist group here that for the last couple of years I had given a talk at their sex and sexuality meetup about uh about just trans issues in general and um one year I did this kind of like spoken word slam poetry piece uh about I called it how to fuck a trans woman. Uh-huh. And it was this sort of tongue in cheek way of exploring how difficult it is to <laughs> to live in a body that's not the way you want it to be uh, and like navigating dating and, and sex and all of that sort of stuff. And at the end of it was this joke about how in six months I was going to have a vagina and I was going to spend weeks in bed with my wife after the fact. And it was, it was a great laugh line. It was really funny. Everyone loved it. And then um, when I went back the next year, I was still very much in the midst of recovery. And of course, I knew the speech everyone there wanted to hear Mm -hmm. uh, because it was the same group of folks. Like they wanted to hear me making jokes about how I'd spent weeks in bed with my wife working out my new vagina. Right. Um, But that's not where I was. Like it was still really painful. Um, I, it was just, it was not a plus like at the end of all of it. Now I actually am like happy and far better off. But like at that particular point in time, I was, I was not in the greatest of places And I went to like write the speech and I'm like, I am terrified to tell the truth about the way that I'm feeling Mm -hmm. in a room full of people in a room that mostly full of people who don't understand what this is like. And so it could very easily be misconstrued as me saying I regretted having the surgery, um, which has all kinds of implications to it. Right. Because that's such a like the it feeds into the right wing narrative about. Yeah, I was just thinking like, yeah, there's so many things that are that are dangerous about even even expressing negative experiences here. Right. There's so much risk. Like you're afraid of turning people off. You're afraid of mm -hmm. giving fuel to the enemy. Yeah. Well, and I actually had another trans person come at me in a support group once um, in a in a a Facebook group uh, locally. And, and like, I didn't even use the word regret. It was just like, holy shit, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. I'm really struggling. And like, I don't know, I just kind of 
need to yell into the void about it. Right. And, uh, and she came back like, Oh, you have to be super careful talking about regretting a surgery or something like that. They're going to use it as an excuse to, to stop it being covered by our insurance. And she was saying like she had surgery coming up and somehow she felt like her ability to get surgery was personally threatened by me expressing regret, which is not what I was doing by the way, again. Right. Right. Um, and so like but, even but she's coming from a place of fear too, right? Exactly. Right. Like, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, so it, it's, it's those kinds of things. Um, mm-hmm. and, and also, you know, this is a thing that I'm working on an episode about that post surgery, I've been effectively demisexual. Like hmm. I don't have a ton of sexual desire anymore and not that I have none, but you know, without getting like to TMI, I was pretty voracious beforehand. Uh, and I'm just not now. And so, you know, again, I feel like that's a thing where the wrong person hears that and they think like, Oh, all this like work and effort and you're not even going to use the damn thing. Like what would you do that for? Right. You know? And, uh, I can't, I can't get into that person's head and make them understand that like, that doesn't mean that I regret doing it. It's actually one of the most positive things I've ever been able to do in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it means a complete lack of sexual activity from here out, which I don't think that's what it is, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm just less interested now than I was before. And the, and it's weird just because it's a new state of being for me, but I don't think there's anything actually wrong with it. And so it's like, I can say that in two or three sentences in conversation with someone, but I would need hours to actually explain it from start to finish. You know what I mean? And those are the conversations that I feel like, uh, aren't being had in the mainstream. And I'm kind of scared to have because, you know, it'd be really easy to, for somebody to lift two or three sentences and and use it as a weapon against us. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's a really scary thing to navigate. Yeah. I mean, I find this really frustrating because like there's, there's folks out there who will say, you know, you're not people aren't willing to have a serious conversation about biology and how it relates to gender and gender expression and like uh and I don't think that people don't want to have a ser- honest conversation. A, I think a lot of this stuff is very much in flux and we are sort of rewriting our understanding of a lot of this in real time for for the better, but like there's there is a, a reasonable feeling that if we start to talk about like if, like if I wanted to ask you the question right do you feel like part of your change in your libido is related to chemical changes that have come about as a result of the transition and how does that relate to conversations about biology versus gender right like there could be a lot of people who'd be really angry just about asking that question and having that that conversation and a lot of people who would take whatever answer you give out of context and use it for whatever aims that they have in their minds. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and, and I don't, I'm not a biologist. I don't, I, I can't claim to know the answer to that question, but I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have to imagine that's a factor, right? Like after right. a major change in my biology, something different happened with my uh, sex drive. Like, of course, those things are probably related. Um, but also, you know, there's a conversation to be had about, um, you know, dysphoria and how it makes you fixate on the parts of your body that you're uncomfortable with, or at least it did for me. And obviously, like, I don't want to speak for all trans folks, but I know that's a, mm-hmm. a, a rather common experience is that uh, you tend to fixate on the parts of your body that you're unhappy with. Um, and it becomes sort of an obsession. And the fact that I don't have that anymore may be something that 
has led to my lack of sexual desire. Like maybe my sexual desire was tied to that sort of like being obsessed with that part of my body Mm -hmm. that I was uncomfortable with. And like, I could at least get some pleasure out of it. And so I had to like, in order for me to learn to live with that, I had to make it positive somehow. And that part of my body being used for sexual activity as a way to do that. And now that I don't have that discomfort anymore, I I don't really experience dysphoria super often anymore. And that's like an amazingly transformative thing for my life. Like it's, it's Mm -hmm. absolutely incredible. It blows my mind every time I think about it, how like I remember laying in bed, like having thoughts of self-harm, like shaking and crying, just like wanting to reach inside me and fucking rip out whatever it was that was making me feel this way. And, you know, to the way that I feel about my body now and the way that I feel about my body now is like, I mean, I've got some minor insecurities that I feel like everyone probably has, but it's definitely not something that I think about on a day to day basis. It's not something that like keeps me awake at night or I, I cry about or I have ton of a ton of negative thoughts about. And, you know, my bottom surgery is the only catalyst for that that I can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's a majorly positive thing. Um, but if, you know, if we're, we're, you know, trying to explore the questions of like why I feel the way that I feel now, like there's, there's a couple of different explanations and it's probably a mishmash of all of those reasons. Right. That's what I was thinking earlier when you were talking about like, why are you suddenly wearing flannel? It's like, well, maybe it is a a complex mix of things and it doesn't need to just be, you know, because I'm trying to perform X or because I'm trying to comfort Y, maybe it's a, 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 you know, a hodgepodge of things. And maybe that's okay. Mm -hmm. Like, it is interesting to wonder, you know, are some of the things in that mix harmful? And should I maybe weed those out a little bit? But like, I don't think there's anything wrong with it being an overdetermined kind of behavior a lot of the time. Um, but it does get at the uh, philosophical question Let's get, to get out of the realms of biology where neither of us are experts and back into a little <laughs> yeah. bit of philosophy. Um, you know, one thing that I think we're all wrestling with in this conversation is what is gender? And the answer often I think we come back to is it's sort of whatever anyone wants it to be. And then what does that mean for individuals who build some of their identity around saying, well, no, it's not, and, you know, or like it has to be related to X, Y, or Z or something like that. Like, uh, is there any way to to balance any of these kinds of essentialist views? I mean, other than, I think like you were saying, we can, you're not going to like yell at someone because they see it that way. But like, or do you take the view at this point that gender is kind of just whatever the person wants it to be in a positive kind of way? That's honestly where I'm at. Um, because I've just, I've seen so many people wrestling with these questions and, you know, because of the show, lots of people reach out to me to ask these sorts of questions when they're struggling with whatever it is they're struggling with. Um, and, and, and I mean, I'm happy to have those conversations because lots of very kind folks were that for me when I was struggling. And so like, I want to pay that forward and be that for other people. Um, but I just like, I feel like I give everyone the same answer. It's like, well, what do you feel like? What feels right to you? Like imagine, do your best to imagine yourself in a world where no one around you gave a shit Mm -hmm. about, uh, you know, whether you dress in a stereotypically feminine or masculine way, or, um, you know, you, you dress in a way that you try to make as you try to be as androgynous as possible. Like try to try to imagine a world where no one gives a shit 
and then what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and so it's like, you know, I, I feel this and what does this mean? And I feel this and what does this mean? Like, I can tell you what it, what it might mean for me. Um, but especially, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking to someone who thinks they're non-binary, that's not an experience that I understand. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm like, you know, if, if that's the word that makes sense to you, then I don't, I don't know that there needs to be a lot of, a lot of wrestling outside of that. And, and I, I think we live mm-hmm. in a world where we've forced people into the position where they have to wrestle with those sorts of things. Because honestly, a big part of my struggle figuring out that I was trans was that I didn't want it to be true because I knew how fucking hard it was. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so I was like trying to wiggle my way out of it and find every excuse to explain it away as something else. Uh, and I think that's something that a lot of folks do. And I'm not in anyone's head and I don't want to like be prescriptive about that until like, like, oh, you're obviously only struggling with this because you know how difficult it is. Um, I don't claim to be in anyone's head, mm-hmm. but I I think oftentimes that's what it is. And, and that's the biggest problem for me. Like, I think the biggest barrier that anyone can get rid of is just to understand, is to just get to the point where you can ask those questions and be comfortable asking those questions uh, and be comfortable kind of figuring out whatever those answers are. Cause the, there's just, there's such a, any oftentimes things that are a taboo become an obsession. And uh, that's what happened for me coming out was that like, you know, I was comfortable wearing more feminine clothing, but that's not something that I was really allowed to do. And so it became like a fixation and an obsession. And then like, once that barrier came down, I'm a little bit more able to engage with those desires in a more honest and healthy way and mm-hmm. say like, you know, what do I actually want out of life? Because at this point I'm allowed to do whatever the fuck I want. It's not like there are a set of options that are uh, easy in my mind and there's a set of options that are hard in my mind and those are factors that I have to factor in. Um, it's just I have a whole smorgasbord of options here and which ones are the most appealing to me. Mm -hmm. But of course that, you know, that comes back to the privilege of, uh, of first being a binary trans person and being someone who is generally read as a woman by the folks that I meet with in public. I have a bit more of a luxury and that like, I don't have to signal my femininity super, super hard because I'm just sort of read that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that makes it a little easier for me to not think so hard about those kinds of things. Whereas uh, folks who don't have that privilege may have to ask those questions a little bit harder, not just for comfort reasons, but for safety reasons. And so like, you know, that's like, that has to be part of the conversation too. Yeah. I mean, I generally agree with all of that from the, when dealing with this question internally and for the individual, like it seems like, you know, what what works for the individual should be the, the deciding factor uh, in all of this. And I also think that, like, that is the, you know, if we're rating, like, what's the most important front to get right in this series of conversations, like, I think that one takes priority. So I, I want to, I'm going to shift uh, um, fields here a little bit to try to make this question even a little bit harder, because I think that you and I are on a similar page on this one, and probably on a lot of the other things. But um, I do think this idea of well whatever the person's personal preference and expression is um is is perfectly fine is great is um you know what 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 it is for them 
this gets, I think, trickier for some people when you apply it to the realm of sports. And you're a person who engages in sports as well, so I imagine you have a lot of thoughts about this. I do want to preface it by saying I think the discussion of specifically trans women in sports is a wedge issue used by the right to just screw everyone over. Like, I don't, I don't believe, like, I believe that this is an interesting conversation to be had once we've settled the more important conversation. I'm not the more important, but I think once we've settled the, the conversations of personal rights. Um, but I do think there are some complexities here, again, going back to biology and gender that a lot of people are struggling with. So what are your thoughts at this point on the issue of, of trans athletes? Um, yeah. Yeah. So the, the first thought that I have, uh, is that it, it bothers me generally speaking that this conversation only seems to happen with one notable recent exception. Uh, it seems to only happen when trans people are involved. Right. Mm -hmm. So like cis men and cis women who have very obvious inherent biological advantages, no one ever really seems to question that. Right. Obviously, you know, we have the the case of Castor Semenya, but there's even even though she's not trans, there is definitely trans misogyny happening there, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Because because if I'm remembering right, uh, the argument that was made against her is that she is not actually a woman based on her biology and the fact that she produces more testosterone than the average cis woman. Right. She's um, usually coded, it seems like, and, as trans in these conversations. Right. Even though she's not. And so right, like right. – but like I listened to a podcast called Today Explained. It's the Vox like daily news podcast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they did an episode about this and they brought up uh, when they, you know, when they did all of those tests on Michael Phelps and found out that his body naturally produces half the lactic acid of the average person. Right. He's, he's half um, fish. Yes. All right. right. Exactly. Uh, and uh, lactic acid being the thing that makes your muscles hurt when you get tired. Right. And he produces half of the average person's lactic acid. And they played this audio and I, I forget who made it, but like, it sounded like a cult promotional video about how amazing this was about him. Mm, you know what I mean? Interesting. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, he was being right. like, it wasn't just that no one cared. Everybody thought it was amazing right. that There's he had this and bad mutants. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and like, one of my favorite questions to ask is like, if you had a cis woman playing basketball and she was seven feet tall, would you be interested in, would you even think to have a conversation about excluding her from the sport that she plays? Most people mm -hmm. say no. And so the, so, so when that conversation only happens when trans people are involved, transness is the issue. It has nothing to do with biology or, you know, inherent yeah. advantage or disadvantage. You know, let's say we live in a hypothetical world where those questions have been answered and we're talking about um, mm -hmm. the sorts of like, you know, the average XX person versus the average XY person and like, you know, what curves we grade that on and how we define what's fair and what's not. Um, it's complicated because, mm -hmm. you know, there's all this talk about testosterone and it, you know, people act as if testosterone is this magic potion that equals athletic performance. And that's just like, I'm not a biologist and I know that's not true. Mm -hmm. We had, we had Dr. Kate McKinnon on a little while ago, talked about her, her work looking at testosterone and sort of the, the a lot of the yeah. myths around that. Mm -hmm. But also like, this is 
a conversation in search of a problem. Um, because if you look at fields where trans women are already actively competing, you see that generally speaking, we don't dominate in the way that you would expect us to, if all of those things were true. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, my body personally, I have lower testosterone levels than the average cis woman does. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and of course we're talking about averages, right? Cause there are cis women who probably have less than I do. And, you know, I'm not... I'm not knowledgeable enough to say that like I can tell you what the thing is that makes the most sense. Um, but like some sort of skills rubric, weight class, all mm -hmm. of those things kind of make more sense to me. Um, I mean, I can give you several anecdotal experiences. I play roller derby, right. uh, which is a very aggressive full contact sport. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, in theory should have an inherent advantage over everyone that I play with. And I just don't like, I get the <laughs> shit kicked out of me regularly. <laughs> well, this is so, so one of the 300 level pushbacks that I hear sometimes from like the, the stocks of the world um, is like, even if you have lower testosterone now, you spent a lot of time from what i understand like you know you were uh doing male sports for a while you were playing football or something like that and you were raised in a more aggressive like you were taught to be more physically aggressive and that aggressive behavior therefore carries over somehow even though you've become trans do you feel like like you are more aggressive in some way than the women you are now competing against no, not at all. I mean, that like, I mean, that's so many assumptions about my life experience. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this, these like, are the kind of like, like, these are the arguments yeah. that I get to at this point. Right? No, for sure. I mean, the last time that I played sports before I started roller derby was in eighth grade. I was 12 or 13 and I'm 35 <laughs> now. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so like, I mean, there might be some muscle memory there <laughs> at some level, but like, I mean, I feel like there are tons of people on my team who are far more aggressive than me. And I mean, that's not to say that I'm not because I very much am, mm -hmm. you know, but but again, that's like that that argument makes so many assumptions about one. It like makes a ton of assumptions about my life that may or may not necessarily be true and really aren't. Because after uh, after I got played after I got done playing, um uh, like part of the reason that I stopped playing football is because that macho bullshit culture was so unappealing to me. Right. Uh, and like I was the kid, like the first time I went and saw professional wrestling live, I cried because I didn't want to see people hurting each other. Oh wow. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and it, and it also like makes a lot of assumptions about the upbringing of cis women. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, cause like, or how they I mean, should be raised especially. Right. right? Exactly. And you know, for some folks, there might be some truth in that for, for some folks there might not be. And so, yeah, that's just like, you know, maybe that certainly doesn't apply to my life. Yeah. Here's, um, here's a question. Actually, this is not as much an argument as a question I'm curious about. And correct me if, I, if I'm wrong. This is my my impression from culture. Would you say that roller derby is coded as a female sport? That it oh, is, most definitely. It's dominated yeah. as a female sport, right? Oh, and, yeah. And a sort of like particularly aggressive female sport, I feel like. The folks, the women who I've known who've done roller derby, like, were into it for a kind of aggressive full contactness. Oh, yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, most definitely. Um, well, and I mean, part of that comes from its history. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, the, it has its roots like in the 1930s. Um, I've actually read somewhere, I wasn't able to verify this, but I read somewhere that roller derby was actually the first sport broadcast on the radio. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but there is a website that says it. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> Seems then, like it's a sport uh, that would benefit from visuals. but uh-huh. Oh, absolutely. It's, well, especially the way that it's played today. Uh, it would be extraordinarily difficult to follow if you couldn't see what was going on. Um, uh, you know, and then it, it, and it sort of evolved into like a spectacle like professional wrestling is. Like that's where all of the like really silly punny derby names come from. Um, and then now the I think the current iteration – started in 2006 if memory serves um mm-hmm. as a as, as an actual sport with rules and like a league and like boundaries and like what's okay and what's not and um obviously like contact sports are always going to be a little bit about sp- uh, spectacle uh but it's definitely about the sport more so than the spectacle now uh but it is i mean it's an extremely aggressive full contact sport and uh for sure like for most of the folks involved that's uh, uh at least part of the appeal if not all of the appeal mm-hmm. um and and i mean for me too like uh but it's also the community like it's the stuff that I liked about football when I was in eighth grade without the like bullshit macho, like egotistical culture. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you know if, if it actually does, but do you think like, do you believe that your league should use personal self-identification for determining who can play in which particular groups? Well, so the, the league that we belong to is a uh, WIFTADA, the Women's Flat Track Derby Association. Mm-hmm. Um, and in their, uh, in their, their gender statement, that's specifically what all they say that they require. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a uh, MURDA, the Men's Roller Derby Association, and they actually don't have any gender requirements at all. That league is completely co-ed. So like literally any, anyone can play. Oh, um, interesting. And, uh, and WIFTADA folks also that, uh, that's, uh, inclusive of non-binary folks as well. Um, I don't, I'm not like in tune enough with the politics to know if there have ever been questions about like trans women competing without having been on hormones or anything like that. Like, I don't, I don't really know. Mm -hmm. Um, but Derby is also uniquely a sport where, um, like size and strength are not always an inherent an advantage, like being small and fast center uh, of gravity and all that. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it's because you play offense and defense at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, like, there, there are people who are like really big and really strong and really amazing. And there are people who are like really small and really fast and really like wiry and, and jumpy mm-hmm. and jukey. And they're really good too. Um, and like, you know, when those two folks go up against each other, you don't always necessarily know what's going to happen just based on the size. And so like, you know, roller derby might even be kind of a unique sport in that way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I can't really speak to the, the dynamics of, of other sports. Um, but you know, I mean, like we have sports that are that are about weight classes, right? Uh, right. And then, you know, there are, uh, you know, like Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, based on like how many games you win or some sort of like skills rubric, rubric or something like that. Like, I don't know, um, you know, if we were going to like erase everything and start over with a clean slate and figure out um, how to keep some level of fairness. Like, I'm not enough of an expert to tell you that I know exactly how that should go down. Uh, but in my mind, what it really comes back to is that like all of these conversations are trying to solve a problem that just kind of doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. Or, or yeah, that can be resolved in a functional kind of way. Right. Uh, if people would stop having other particular biases. 
Right. Um, great. So uh, I guess the last thing I wanted to chat on a little bit before we run out of time is um, sort of looking forward. You know, in the last election, trans issues were kicked around in a variety of problematic ways, I think. And I'm curious, are, are we, do you, th- would you agree or do you think that we are totally fucked with regard to discussing these issues at a social level, especially as the election ramps up? Or do you have any I hope think, on anything? <laughs> yeah. I think totally fucked is a little hard. Mm-hmm. Um, we are at least slightly fucked mm-hmm. um, because I, of the current slate of Democratic candidates, I can't think of one that I trust to get trans issues totally right. I can't think of one um, that's even spoken on it since the primary started. Uh, Beto has, has in okay. a way that demonstrated he has zero understanding of the problem. Great. <laughs> Basically, he, he, uh, the, the TLDR version is he blamed the current climate of hate against trans people, trans people directly on Donald Trump. Um, mm-hmm. which like, like I get like make a villain of the guy who's the president, but like the shit didn't start with Donald Trump. And if you can say that with a straight face, you really have no fucking clue what's going on. And uh, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren both have some problematic stuff around trans people in prisons. Mm -hmm. Um, Bernie said some stuff that was kind of encouraging in the last election cycle. I don't know that he said anything recently. For some reason, I want to remember hearing that Pete Buttigieg said something positive, but I, I can't remember specifics. I just think at the absolute best... I don't think any of any any of the folks running really understand what the issues are outside of like, you know, we need a non-discrimination law, which is good because we do need those. Mm -hmm. But there is a much deeper conversation that needs to be had. And even if the the most leftist of leftist candidates that are currently in contention run, I don't know that. um, I mean, the the story gets better there for sure. Um, But I think it I think the most we could probably hope for is a return to the Obama era sort of inching forward bit by bit by bit, uh, which is better than nothing for sure. Um, but I don't know that I have a lot of faith that things will get a lot better, uh, with, Mm -hmm. with any of the folks currently in contention in October, there's supposed to be uh, a democratic town hall based specifically around LGBTQ issues. The HRC is putting it on, uh, if I remember in October. Um, and I want to, I want to kind of wait to reserve really strong judgments until I hear what goes on there or even in the, you know, in the upcoming first round of debates. But like there's going to be so many people on the stage. I doubt that anybody's going to get more than seven or eight sentences about anything. in. so I don't know that we're going to learn a lot there. Mm -hmm. So I don't even want to say cautiously optimistic. I want to say I'm like cautiously not pessimistic. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, I just, I don't know. <laughs> like, I mean, I get the impression that, like, they're all going to studiously avoid talking about it and that, like, the consensus has, has become the conventional wisdom of, you know, this is a wedge issue that a large portion of the country doesn't understand and it's going to kind of be a third rail as a result and that, like, it's unfortunate and I, I'm, I mean, I feel ambivalent about, like, it being okay that they engage in that kind of sort of shuffling under the rug of an important issue because they feel like it doesn't play as well. But, like, in the same, you know, like, you, you don't see an Elizabeth Warren plan for this issue the way she's going to prop up 12 million plans for a bunch of other things. And I think that that's, that's got to be deliberate, right? And I'm, I'm, I don't oh, know, yeah. I, I feel, I feel very frustrated about it because, 
I feel like we're going to go into this election and, and like on the left, we're going to spend a lot of time fretting over studiously avoiding talking about a lot of really, really important things because we're so desperately afraid that talking about any of them is going to reelect Trump. Well, right. That's exactly it. Because like, fuck Bill Maher. But when right. he was talking about Hillary Clinton saying that she shouldn't talk about trans bathroom stuff, like do the right thing once you get into office, but don't talk about it because, um, you know, fuck Bill Maher, but he's not entirely wrong about that. Right. Um, and that's a really, really depressing commentary on where we are as a society that like even just bringing us into the conversation seems to poison it because people hate us so much. Um, mm -hmm. I'd be curious to see, but I bet that at that that town hall you were talking about is going to be like ninety percent gay rights, which is an easy topic, easy layup for the Dems at this point, and like ten percent discussion of trans issues, if that. Oh yeah, I'd be shocked if we got anything more than like we need to make sure that there's a non discrimination law that includes trans folks. Like mm -hmm. I, I'd be surprised if there wasn't at least a token mention of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, saying that we need to, uh, you know, bring back the um, the ACA Cl protections. Right, clarify uh, Title Nine. Right. Yeah. Or um, but I, I don't know that I am expecting to hear anything super substantive about, uh, you know, going beyond non-discrimination and actually addressing, uh, access to healthcare and trans competency in healthcare and, uh, disparities in healthcare that, uh, intersect with the fact that, you know, trans people are disproportionately poor, uh, trans people of color are disproportionately affected by all of the bad things that all of us are affected by. Mm -hmm. Um, and like sort of talking about how all of those issues intersect. I don't, I don't have a lot of confidence that we're going to get much of substance on that. Yeah. And, and it's hard because like, you know, that you're going to get even less from the other side. Yep. But it's like, it's, ugh. um, yep. if there was like one thing that you could really hear them talk about that would feel like they were understanding some of it. Is there, what would you want to hear out of them? Honestly, anything that demonstrates a real understanding of the situation that trans folks face, for example, with access to healthcare, like some acknowledgement of the fact that like, I think something like 25% of trans folks uh, report having to educate their healthcare providers on trans issues. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the number is like 19 or 20% of folks uh, feel like they have been denied access to healthcare on one level or another because of being trans. Like, even just hearing someone speak about those things as if they understand the reality of the problem, I think would be encouraging. And, um, you know, maybe that's a sad commentary on where we're at. Um, but that's not something that I've, that I've really heard. Um, and in fairness, this early, I am not the most like day-to-day -day engaged with all, with all of this because it's so exhausting. And, um, so many of these folks are just not going to be in the picture, Mm -hmm. for too long. So I'm not investing a ton of energy. So maybe this stuff is out there and I haven't heard it. Like I want to fully acknowledge that that's possible. Um, but it's definitely not something that I've heard. Uh, and I feel like the circles that I run in would be like yelling and screaming about it if it happened. Right. Um, but, uh, but you know, may maybe there's better stuff out there than I have seen. Uh, I would be delighted to find out that I'm wrong about that, but I don't think I am. <laughs> if, um, if you could convey to them like one particularly voidy, trans story to help them understand the severity of some of the problems is there anything that that comes to mind that you would want to share or dead black trans women during pride month there you go it's, 
pretty much nails it. Um, yep. <laughs> that's, that's what I would, that's what I would want to draw to their attention and, uh, uh, and, and shine a gigantic light on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't got anything to add to that. Certainly. Um, do you have any final 300 level trans thoughts that you would like to leave folks with who are still trying to understand all of these things more and, uh, before we head over to making the void livable? You know, I think part of what makes these conversations difficult sometimes is that uh, I, I feel like it's mostly a natural human impulse that we want to understand these things. So even if we accept that, yeah, cool, gender is a spectrum. I have no issues with that. I know that gender is a spectrum. I know that it's largely socially constructed. Um, and the fact that it's socially constructed doesn't mean it's not real, but like that means that uh, because it's socially constructed, we can socially reconstruct our ideas around gender to make things not harmful, et cetera, et cetera. Like there are people who will like you will acknowledge those kinds of things. But what I often hear in these conversations is just the seem seeming like I need to understand this before I can accept it. I need to understand what it's like to be a non-binary person before I'm cool with using they, them pronouns mm-hmm. or, you know, I need to. I need to understand what it's like to experience dysphoria before I acknowledge that trans-related surgeries are medically necessary. Um, I hear mm-hmm. those kinds of things, and they're usually wrapped up in prettier language than that. But if you boil down what the message is, that is often what it is. And the thing that I would encourage folks to unpack is that need uh, and just becoming more comfortable with someone self-reporting, um, you know, Hey, I've, I've actually had thoughts of self-harm because of the dysphoria that I experienced for being trans. And that makes the transition related care that I need medically necessary. You can accept that without understanding it, because if it's not your experience, you're not gonna, um, there might be somewhat parallel things that might help give you some idea, uh, some sort of like empathy, sympathy, compassion, uh, for what we're going through. But like, Largely, if that's not your experience, you're not going to understand it. And I think just sort of becoming comfortable with that um, and internalizing the idea that uh, allyship is a journey, not a destination, because, you know, obviously, like we're speaking about trans stuff because that's who I am and that's what's most relevant to my life. But like those things intersect with poverty. They intersect with race. Uh, there's mm-hmm. uh, complicated conversations to be had about gender when we're talking about trans men and, non- and non-binary folks where those social constructs around gender ex- affect those folks differently than they do like me as a trans woman, for example. And understanding that there is no destination where it's like, oh, finally, I understand trans issues. Let's move on to something else. Um, like it's it's an exploration of something that like, even if you had all available knowledge and understanding of what there is today, tomorrow things are going to be different because people are always exploring themselves and figuring out different things about themselves. This stuff is ever evolving and ever changing and understanding that this is a lifelong never ending process and becoming okay with that instead of seeing it as like, I'm going to take a college class on gender and all of a sudden I understand (laughs) gender. Like that's not how it works. And And it sounds like, it sounds like I'm, like belittling folks who think that way and like talking down about it. But like, that's how our society teaches us to think about stuff. Right. Uh, and I, I'm the first to admit that me being a trans person is probably the main reason why I have the understanding of this being a lifelong journey, as opposed to something that like I've done enough reading that I have an acceptable level of understanding about it. Um, because it's 
taken me this long to unpack those ideas uh, for myself around gender, but like also around things where I'm going to be an ally to folks. So like things about race and things about disability and uh, and intellectual ability and all of those sorts of things that are you know, being on the marginalized side of things in those ways are experiences that I don't understand. And uh, me internalizing the idea that me trying to be an ally to those folks is also a lifelong journey for me. It's not there's not just some magic level at which I have the knowledge I need to to know what I need to be a good ally to those folks. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of like, if we want to get at the most foundational thing that I think people can do uh, to make the world better, I think that's it. And all of the sort of more practical, like boots on the ground kind of things that you can do flow from that mindset, I think. Definitely. I think that's great stuff. We, we're big fans of lifelong journeys here. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, why don't we hop on over and do Making the Void Livable? Yeah. That's what you got so, for us. Okay. So you presented this to me as something that something would uplift people and make uh-huh. people feel good. Um, and, you know, we know like the world is is kind of a dumpster fire for lots of people in lots of ways now. Um, and... I recognize that like my ability to focus on something that I love is a privilege because not everyone can do these sorts of things. But, um, so I'm kind of, uh, I'm coming to the end of my first season of roller derby and I started just a little over a year ago. I was absolutely terrified, um, because I'm not the outgoing extroverted person that people know me as is not how I am in all areas of life. (laughs) Um, and so, you know, the first time I show up, you know, since I was 13, I'd skated maybe two or three times. I was scared. I was going to hurt myself. People were going to be mean to me, uh, whatever, all of that stuff. And thankfully none of that happened. And when I made tryouts, I set a goal for myself that, uh, so the league that I skate for has three teams, an A team, a B team and a C team. Right. And the two C team games are at the very end of the season. And at the beginning of the whole thing, I said, I want to skate in a C team game before the end of my first season. I feel like that's a realistic goal that would push me, but that I might be able to do. And all of this just stems from the fact that I decided at, uh, the beginning of last year that I was going to try to take at least a little bit of time to do things that were just for my fulfillment and my enjoyment. And, you know, I want to do podcasting work. I want to do activist work and that's all very important. Uh, but I wanted to take my own well-being into consideration as well, because obviously like if you take care of yourself, you're going to be better at everything that you do. Mm -hmm. And so our first, our first home game of the season comes and I made the roster for the B team. which was a huge personal achievement for me. Uh, And I was rostered for every B team game after that. Uh, And I, and I was rostered for the C team games (laughs) that I Mm -hmm. was like, that I had set my goals for. Mm -hmm. I've gotten uh, MVP jammer twice. So that's like the jammer, the people who wear stars on their helmets and score points. And you you find the snitch. Is that how that works? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, from day one i wanted to be a jammer right okay and they put me in the jammer rotation for a game uh and i think it was the second or third game that i was in the jammer rotation i won mvp jammer and the game that we played last week i won mvp jammer and then i made what we call the charter 20 which means that you're eligible to be rostered for the a team and right at the end of the season 
the very last A team game of the season next Sunday, I made the roster for that game. Nice. And I just want everyone in the world to have something that makes them feel the way roller derby makes me feel. Obviously, contact sports are not for everyone. I get that. I'm not saying everyone should go strap on a, a pair of skates and start hitting people. I would definitely recommend to try it if you think it's something that sounds fun. But uh, not for everyone. I understand that. What made you think it would be but, for you? Honestly, it was uh, exercise had started to get boring. Just like like regular like treadmill mm-hmm. weightlifting exercise had started to get boring. And I was like, you know, if I want to stay in good physical shape, I should probably find a sport to play. Um, and... Uh, I got randomly invited skating by some coworkers and I was like, oh my gosh, this is kind of fun. And I like have a little bit of memory how to do roller skating. And uh, there were some folks there that were uh, like they were dressed up in athletic gear and I thought they might be like roller derby players. And I mentioned something on Facebook about going roller skating and then I had like three PMs that night from people saying that I really should try it out. Uh, nice. and then I found that the, the team that I play for has an open practice every Monday that beginners can come to. And so I started going, um, and so I, what I sort of the, the moral of the story there is that like, I, I would just encourage folks in whatever way you can just to find something that's meaningful and try to engage in that thing, whether it's, um, like I've seen so many people start, uh, talk about wanting to start a podcast, go start a podcast. If you have a smartphone, you can make a podcast. You know, if you've got a laptop with a webcam, you can start a YouTube channel. There's like mm-hmm. free video editing software. Um, all of the like the problems that we want to solve in the world seem so huge and so insurmountable and so difficult. Uh, and they are like just to be completely real, they totally are. Um, but it's not wrong to want to disengage from that for a second and do something that's for you, for your own enjoyment, for your own fulfillment. Uh, and, and I would encourage folks to like really invest whatever time and effort you're capable of in finding what that thing is and, uh, and, and doing it because it's been, um, like the creative output that I do with the podcast, the the personal conversations that I have with people behind the scenes uh, that, you know, never make it into the podcast and all of that sort of stuff. I am better at all of those things because I'm healthier, because I've taken that time to do this thing for myself. And uh, it helps me refresh and it helps me reset and it helps me approach the work that I do with, um, with a fresher mind, uh, you know, being rested and uh, mm-hmm. and being in a better state of mind. And I would just strongly encourage folks, whatever, whatever that thing is for you, engage in it unapologetically because it will make you better at whatever, whatever else you do. Great. Wonderful. Well, I appreciate Callie coming on and making this, my job so easy, um, by saying <laughs> all of these brilliant things so beautifully. Can you let folks know where they can find you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so queer explaining is in all of the pod places. If you have a, a preferred podcast app, it should be there. Um, queersplaining.com is the site. I'm at Callie gets it on Twitter and Instagram, and I'm just Callie Wright, W R I G H T on Facebook. Thanks so much. Uh, and really appreciate having you on. And we'll have to get you back on Philosophers in Space at some point soon for some more Star Trek nerdery. Oh, God, please. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right.